you're listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Tonight the lectionary has placed a couple of short parables on our plate, both about seeds and neither of them sounding particularly sophisticated. They're both about the kingdom of God and are part of a series of kingdom parables that mark the opening part of the gospel tradition, including the well-known parable of the sower who goes out and sows seed and it grows differently in different places. Together, the kingdom parables effectively declare that everything else Jesus will do in his life and ministry should be read in terms of the kingdom or the the reign of God. Now, the little parable of the mustard seed, the smallest seed that grows great and large, that one's included by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Mark alone has the first one we read, the the parable of the growing seed. So why didn't Matthew or Luke pick up on that one as well? I mean, the broad scholarly consensus is that Mark's is the earliest of the Gospels, that Matthew and Luke would have had it in hand as they wrote theirs. So why give this one little parable a pass? Well, speculates the New Testament scholar Matt Skinner, probably because it's boring. Its plot has all the suspenseful drama of an ordinary elementary school life sciences textbook. There are no surprises. Everything proceeds according to plan. So listen to that little one again. Jesus says, The kingdom of God is as if someone would scatter seed on the ground and would sleep and rise day and night. The seed would sprout and grow. He does not know how. The earth produces of itself. First the stalk, then the head, then the full grain in the head. And when the grain is ripe, at once he goes in with his sickle, because the harvest has come. There's absolutely no interesting sort of twist in it, say like in the Good Samaritan or the Prodigal Son or the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Nor does it even have the kind of simple and symbolic elegance of the image of the tiny mustard seed growing great. The seeds in this first little parable are planted. They sprout, they grow. When the grain is ripe, the harvest happens. That's it. Well, yes and no. Maybe when Matthew and Luke looked at the parable, they just assumed it was obvious to the point of being a bit dull. They opted to weave their gospel accounts a little differently. But I suspect Mark was seeing and hearing something deeper and more interesting in this teaching. And I think the deeper and the more interesting is found in two phrases. He does not know how. The one who planted and will later harvest. He does not know how the grain grows. And the earth produces of itself. The person who sows the seed, wipes the dust off his hands, goes home for a well-deserved sleep. A few days later, he takes a look at the garden. He sees that things are sprouting up. 
He knows not how. He just knows that he's done his seeding, and now it's time to let the earth do its work. He has to take his hands off and let it grow, knowing that in time he'll have the grain he needs for baking his bread. Until then, just let it grow, let it be. Don't try to control it or mess with it. And here Robert Capon comments, The kingdom grows, Jesus says, because the kingdom is already planted. It grows of itself and in its own good time. Above all, the kingdom grows, we know not how. Now, we might have our own bright ideas as to how the kingdom of God should grow or might grow. The kingdom of God will rise up when we rise up and rebel against the Roman imperial occupation of Jerusalem. Now, that's what the group known as the Zealots argued. They knew how the kingdom grew. It grew by revolution. It grew by the sword. The kingdom, according to the Pharisees, the kingdom will be brought in by our faithfulness to the Torah. If we call ourselves back to the righteousness of being a deeply Torah-shaped people, God will return Jerusalem to its glory. That's how the kingdom grows. Or there was a Jewish sect known as the Essenes. And the Essenes, for the most part, had withdrawn to communities outside of society to live their life separately, communally, and according to strict disciplines and practices. They saw that as the purest expression, the purest form of faith. To the mind of the Essenes, what they were doing was actively building or bringing about the kingdom of God, even as they awaited the fullness of its coming. There are all kinds of ways in which people across the ages, people and groups, have put their own bright ideas to work whether the sword or righteousness or withdrawal. But as Robert Capon observes, if the kingdom could have been made to grow in the world by bright ideas, it would have sprouted up all over the place, six times a day ever since Adam. But it never did, and it never will, except in a mystery that remains resolutely beyond our moralizing score-evening comprehension. So in a very real sense, that little parable that just describes how things grow, it's a call to a kind of patience and humility. The seed that is Christ has been sown into the world, and it is doing its work. That's the only truly bright idea there is anywhere. Jesus will, of course, offer some rather solid ideas as to how we might live and act and be in order to come alongside of this growing kingdom, this reign of God that is both now among us and yet still moving towards its culmination. He'll offer some very good ideas as to how we might live and move and be. And later, Paul and Peter and James and John will do the same. But that isn't about 
our building the kingdom any more than were the efforts of the zealots and the Pharisees and the Essenes. We come alongside, but God is the one at work. And then we roll right into the parable of the mustard seed. Now that's a familiar one. The kingdom is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet, Jesus continues, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The smallest thing tiny mustard seed becomes the greatest thing, which recalls that repeated teaching of Jesus that the last shall be first, right? And that is there, certainly. It's most certainly there. Even more particularly when you step back and think about the content and the context of this little parable. And realize that there is built into it a wonderful absurdity. As Matt Skinner points out, in that world, the ancient Near East, mustard was not a crop anyone would sow. Mustard, he notes, was prolific, like a common and sturdy weed. It could pop up almost anywhere and start multiplying. Some of Jesus' listeners must have groaned or chuckled. Imagine him speaking today of thistles or ground ivy, but bigger and not easily eradicated. Good luck keeping it out of your well-manicured garden or your farmland. The kingdom of God is like dandelions. So that's the first thing to notice. I mean, he's talking about something nobody would, would, would go and seed. Even though it was useful, it had medicinal purposes, it was used as a, as, you know, as, a, as a spice or a flavoring the same way we do, but you wouldn't plant it. You'd have to just keep pulling it back. Not only that, but in his parable, Jesus describes mustard as the greatest of all shrubs. Now that's even taken further over the top in, the, in, the, in the, the way that Matthew and Luke tell the story because they take out the word shrub and they call it the greatest of trees. Now calling mustard a tree is a stretch at best, but calling it the greatest of trees, uh, not a chance. I mean, that's a world that knew the cedars of Lebanon, these, these ancient majestic trees. That's a tree. Even calling it the greatest of shrubs is more than just a little bit subjective. And so, again, from Matt Skinner. At this point, most of Jesus' audience probably snorted and blew milk out of their noses. Mustard can grow dense, but it is hardly magnificent. Jesus must be grinning as he speaks. He's not aiming to impart insights about the relative worth of shrubberies, but to shock people into a new way of perceiving greatness. He's aiming to shock people 
into a new way of perceiving or, or thinking about greatness, which is the very same thing he does when he teaches about the last being first or the meek inheriting the earth. Whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, he says at another point in the gospel. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. Do you see? I mean, it's a grand joke to take the mustard seed, talk about a farmer sowing it, heavens, nobody would do that, pointing out to the fact that, yeah, that little seed yields big, but it's not the most magnificent, greatest of all shrubs, not unless you rethink greatness. It's a grand joke told by the greatest and most merry prankster of all. It's another call to let go of our own bright ideas and to come alongside of this mystery called the kingdom of God, always trying to ally our understandings of greatness and rightness and the way of God with those of this king, bringing our view in line with his view. And this king as Brian Dirksen taught us to sing, this is the king who has scars on his hands, the king who is servant of all. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. You've been listening to a St. Benedict's Table podcast. For more information on our church or to provide support for our online work, visit us at stbenedictstable.ca.